You're listening to Think Sustainability, the podcast that explores practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Wendy Frew. I'm at a special facility for sick koalas in Richmond on Sydney's fringe. It's pouring with rain, my feet are muddy, and I'm worried about my recording gear. The koalas look miserable. But are they? And so what if they are? Well, if we want to save this endangered species, it turns out their minds matter. In this episode, we'll explore a whole new branch of animal conservation, the mental health of wild animals. Do koalas like rain? Never Um, thought about that. Is it a problem for them? No, no. When I used to have my enclosures uh, up at home, they're not completely roofed in like they are here. And my partner would often say to me, poor buggers, look at them, it's pouring in rain and they're not even bothering to get out of it. But you think about it, and I'd say to her, in the wild, they have no way to get out of the rain. It's just a part of life for them. And, um, you know, they have this really thick fur on them, which which helps keep them warm. That's Morgan Philpott, a volunteer koala carer for animal rescue group WIRES. When Morgan isn't looking after koalas suffering from debilitating chlamydia infections, he's a neonatal nurse at Nepean Hospital. You could say caring's in his blood. I think if a koala's really sick already, its immune system is downloaded, perhaps it might cause some problems, but generally with a healthy koala, it's just part of day-to-day life. Morgan's been caring for koalas for nearly a decade, and he's learned to recognise when one of these unique animals is frightened or under stress. Sometimes when you're trying to assess a koala's demeanour, they're all different like we are. And you have some that are going to be quite relaxed around people. Well, well not, not display outward signs that they're stressed with us being there. Then you have others which will be at the other end of that spectrum where they will be quite worried about us being there. And they may even start to vocalise. Uh, in some cases, they might even try and start becoming defensive and, and swiping at you if you get too close. But there are certain things that we can look at, like the position of the ears. If the ears are down flat, you know, you've probably got a koala that's feeling a bit sick, not very happy. If his ears are really up quite bright and you're near him, you can bet he's on alert already because we're predators and that's certainly how they see us as well. We know wildlife numbers around the world are falling fast, but animal conservation is more sophisticated than just counting animals in the wild. Scientists and volunteer animal carers like Morgan collect reams of data to detect as early as possible when animal populations are under stress. Camera traps and drones are used to track things such as an animal's day-to-day movements or the size of its home range. Researchers also watch how animals interact with each other and they analyse what they eat and what they leave behind. Collecting, counting and analysing koala poo is all part of Morgan's work. going to get heavier now. Is that the scat? Yes, yes it is. Uh, um, yeah, we, we count... Look at scats every day. It's as part of a really integral part of looking after koalas, especially sick ones. So we do a count, uh, and we'd like to see at least 120 a day if we can. And then we look at the quality of the scat as well, so that the shape and the size and the moisture content. These animals have been quite sick with chlamydia, so part of the treatment is that we have to give them systemic antibiotics, so daily injectables. Of course, it always runs a risk of destroying the, the gut biome and 
koalas, which is really, really specific, so that they can tolerate the diet that they have of eucalyptus leaves. So the leaves are very high in toxins and very low in nutrients and water, so they have a very specific gut flora to help them process the initial part of all that leaf. So if you disturb that gut biome, then we run a real risk of killing the koala. So the scat is one of the key indicators of the koala's health? Certainly when we're treating disease with antibiotics, absolutely. Wildlife conservation emerged in the 19th century, beginning with efforts to preserve animal habitat, control predators and study animal breeding. It's only relatively recently that researchers began studying what's called animal welfare, assessing the mental health of wild animals. Veterinarian Andrea Harvey is one of those exploring new ways of thinking about animal emotions and psychology. She's a research fellow in animal welfare at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welfare is a word that's banded around a lot and used in a lot of different contexts and has a different meaning to different people. But in animal welfare science, when we're talking about welfare, what we really mean is the mental experiences that animals are having, or in other words, the, the emotions that animals are having. The whole field of animal welfare science actually arose from the study of um, livestock and, and farm animals and, and really because of the recognition that intensive farming was having negative impacts on those animals. And so since then, it's really grown into domestic animals and sport animals, but is very, very new in wild animals. Andrea's love affair with animals began when she was a child growing up in the UK first with her pet cat, then with a pony she named Merrylegs after one of the horses in the children's classic Black Beauty. I moved over to Australia from the UK in 2011. My partner had a large farm and I'd always had a dream to have a horse from a youngster and to train it right from the beginning and so I had this opportunity and started looking around and it was through that looking around that I became aware of the plight of the Brumbies and I ended up adopting three yearling Brumbies and that's where that all began. Andrea found that for people on the extreme sides of the debate about wild horses living in Australia's alpine areas, the argument was really about the horses. She realised no one had done any scientific welfare assessments of these animals and she wanted to know more about how they were faring. Studying Brumbies was a natural um, bridge into wild free-roaming animals in general and they were a good bridging species because we know a lot more about the welfare of horses through studies in domestic horses and so it allowed me to explore methods of capturing the information that we need to assess welfare from animals that are free roaming in the in the wild. My background as a veterinarian comes from dealing more with animals as individuals that are part of people's families and you get to know them very well. It sort of also does perhaps make me look at wild animals in a different way as well in that they're not just populations of animals that all do the same thing like machines they're all individual animals within those populations and I guess we, we don't know them as well as individuals because we don't have that close relationship with them and um, it's really uh, only very recent that we've began to think of wild animals in, in that way as, as well and explore them as individuals and not just as populations. It feels natural to talk about animals the same way we talk about ourselves 
We think of our pets as being happy or cheeky or lonely. Plenty of people will tell you their dog knows when their owner feels sad. Scientists have traditionally been reluctant to say that animals have an emotional life. But a growing body of research shows animals do experience a more nuanced and broader range of mental experiences than we previously thought. In scientific terminology, we really talk about mental experiences of the animal or affective experiences of the animal rather than emotions. I think using the term emotions makes it a little bit easier for um, most people to understand what we're talking about. And, And certainly those mental experiences can involve more complex emotions, but I guess are understanding and scientific evidence of different mental experiences is a lot stronger for those kind of experiences like hunger, fear, um, discomfort, pain and so on than more complex emotions that we might think about when we're referring to ourselves. We can't really measure those emotions and so it's hard to get scientific evidence for some more complex emotions to know whether they exist or not. So for example, one that's often discussed is is grief. Do animals experience grief? And and a lot of people that have had pets where another pet has died would with absolute certainty say that yes, their other pet experienced grief. And we may not have really good scientific evidence for that, but also that doesn't mean that they don't experience those complex emotions as well. So we just have to be a little bit cautious about that. And and it's an evolving field where we're continuing to build evidence of, of different emotions in animals. But why does any creature, human or animal, experience emotion? From an evolutionary standpoint, what's the point? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Negative emotions, so things like hunger, um, feeling hot or feeling cold or um, fear or feeling unwell or injured, in, in pain, all of those kind of emotions drive the animal to change their behavior in a way to reduce those negative experiences. And so that change in their behavior will facilitate them to um, recover from illness or or to survive in terms of driving them to search for food or driving them to get out of um, heat or to, to warm up or to avoid a threat. And so some degree of negative emotion is actually important, um, but it's when those negative emotions become very severe or prolonged that it really impacts the animal's welfare. Um, Positive emotions are often result from behaviours that are directed to reduce those same negative emotions. So an animal might feel hungry, they're driven to search for food and to eat, and then they can also experience pleasure from the act of, of eating different foods. Horses are very social animals, but if they are experiencing a lot of negative emotions they may actually be wandering around on their own that could be because they're unwell it could be because they're so desperately searching for food whereas when they don't have those negative emotions they're more likely to engage in lots of social interactions with other horses things like resting together grazing together playing grooming each other um, and so on. Is there some kind of emotional hierarchy among animals? Do more intelligent animals have a more complex emotional life? 
and this is why the field of animal neuroscience is is really a critical component of animal welfare science because understanding animal emotions really comes down a lot to understanding the brain function of different animals as well and that field of animal neuroscience is also something that's very much evolving the technology that's available to study animal brains is evolving all of the time. So there's still a lot that we don't know. Historically, we would always think of animals that have more similar brain structures to humans would have more capacity to experience similar emotions. But there's always more and more emerging evidence of animals, even with very simple brain structures, that they still have capacity to experience some emotions. It's not that long ago that we've developed the evidence for for some more simple animals like fish, for example, to know that yes, they definitely can experience pain. It's difficult to study these things in wild animals because it's so hard to get close to them. Generally, how, how are you measuring an animal's emotions? If we take the example of the Brumbies, what are you looking at? Things like pulse, posture, um, agitation? Obviously, uh, emotion, mental experiences, they're subjective things. We, we can't measure them directly. So it's really important to be aware of the limitations there that, in what we're able to do. But we recognise that um, emotions or mental experiences arise from physical states. And those physical states we can measure or, or observe in terms of, of behaviours. And we call those welfare indicators. So those could be things like um, the animal's body condition score, uh, their facial expressions, their body posture, the way they walk, um, presence of signs of disease or injury, um, and particularly their behaviours and their behavioural interactions as well with each other, with the environment and, and with people if that's relevant as well. What would you see if you were, particularly if you were looking at a, an unhealthy population of brumbies? A really important thing with the study of this in animals as well is how we capture information. So for example, with Brumbies, what I found was that when they were experiencing a lot of negative emotions, it was mostly driven by a lack of food. So you didn't actually see you know, a herd of unhappy horses, as it were, because those horses would have split up, they might be on their own or just with one other horse, and they'd be wandering much longer distances in search for food. As they lost body condition, they would become weak. Um, You could see their facial expressions change, their body posture change. And this information I captured with remote camera traps. So a lot of these horses I never actually physically saw because the problem is once they get into that state, because they've split up from their herd, they're wandering longer distances, often through bush, it's very hard to physically see those horses. I guess for for a herd animal or animals that we would expect to be quite sociable and moving in groups, when you're seeing them in on their own or in much smaller groups, that's potentially a sign that something's going wrong with the population? I mean, not always, because there are other instances where those kind of behaviours will be observed. So, for example, when male horses reach a certain age, they're going to leave their herd in search of new mates, or they often form a bachelor herd first. And so those horses 
horses might be seen on their own or with one or two others but that's part of their natural process it's not because they they're sort of doing badly so it's it would be that in combination with other things like uh, their body condition their body posture how they're moving so often with assessing welfare we're a really important thing is we're not looking at just sort of one or two things we're, we're looking at a whole range of different indicators and bringing those together. Andrea is now in the early stages of looking at the mental health of koalas and she hopes that what she learns can eventually be used to study other animals as well. I purposely chose the koala because they're obviously a completely different species to the horse, not just because they live in trees, but they're um, not as as sociable. They're often on on their own. They're not as active. They spend a lot of time sleeping. So a lot of people might think, well, you know, how on earth can we begin to assess how a koala might be feeling? And, And it's certainly a big challenge. Koalas spend a lot of time sleeping. So that's really important to them. So I'm starting to think, well, how can we look at sleep? Is there differences in the quality of their sleep, the way that they're sleeping, you know, maybe the body posture, how much they're moving like during sleep, facial expressions, again, perhaps a bit more difficult in koalas. They're not as expressive as, you know, animals like horses or dogs. But with a lot of these animals, it may just be that those expressions are a lot more subtle um, and so we have to look a lot more carefully. So, for example, there could well be changes in their ear position when they're feeling in pain or feeling unwell or even, you know, feeling under threat or, or anxious. The hope is that assessing an animal's mental welfare will help us spot red flags about broader changes in wild animal populations before it's too late to help them being able to assess their welfare is very likely to be an early warning indicator of the type of challenges that species is facing and an early warning indicator of their population trajectories. And certainly what I found in horses, you know, gave me that idea. And it makes sense. Obviously, if you have a pet dog, you pick up early signs of when it might be unwell or might be behaving unusually long before hopefully the animal dies whereas typically in ecology in conservation what's being measured is things like population densities survival and reproductive rate but those really when you think about it are quite crude measures there's likely to be a lot of changes that happen in individual animals within that population well before you see changes in in population numbers and and trajectories so it's not enough for example to just keep track of the numbers of a particular animal in a particular area over time you've got to see how they're behaving how they're socializing to really understand their welfare. Exactly right. I think when we're just monitoring their survival and reproductive success, we're monitoring things that are happening too late. We need to be able to find earlier indicators that they might not be doing so well. Studying animals in the wild is obviously difficult. And you mentioned earlier about the Brumbies and uh, cameras capturing their activity. How are you studying the koalas? because there's so little known about mental experiences and welfare in koalas, I'm actually starting studies in captive populations. So both koalas that come in through wildlife 
hospitals and sanctuaries and also those in zoos to develop a better understanding first of the type of measures that we might be able to look at before trying to transfer that to wild koalas. It's an area that people shy away from and put in the too hard box. And what I'm trying to say is like, it's really hard, but let's start somewhere and try and make slow progress. Can you use anything that we know about domesticated animals, emotional experiences to help you analyse wild animals or are they too different? Absolutely. I mean, that's what I've done with the horses and obviously with horses being the same species um, we can learn a lot from horses in domestic situations so a lot of the things I looked at in horses like body posture and facial expressions are things that have been really really well studied in domestic horses and so that provided a lot of the evidence of the link between those different changes and different mental experiences they might be um, having it becomes a lot harder in species where we don't have that information from domestic animals but we can still extrapolate to a degree in at least in developing the ideas so for example if body posture is important in horses and important in dogs important in cats it's probably important in wild animals as well. Animal rescue groups such as WISE are also adding to the growing body of knowledge about Australia's wild animals. The information koala carer Morgan Philpock collects is added to his organisation's database and to New South Wales Repository for Biodiversity. That's called BioNet. There's so much about these animals that we don't understand still and that every little bit of information that can go into that database I think provides another another drop in in the pool. Researchers and carers can keep collecting information about the koalas long after they're released back into the bush. One thing we do a lot is when we release koalas, we work with another organisation called Science for Wildlife, and they will usually pop a uh, radio transmitting collar on or an ear tag, and they can do monitoring of that koala for up to 12 months to see how they reintegrate back into their colony and how they utilise the landscape there in at different times of the year. So this is really important information. And again, it's just another piece of the jigsaw to help us more better understand these, these animals. Funding for this kind of work remains scarce. There's a lot of studies that happen on koalas which two or three years. And I think, I mean, that, that's important. We need these studies, but they need to do more longitudinal studies where we research these things for far longer. So we get better pictures and clearer pictures on what these animals do and what they respond well to and what they don't. Not all of the koalas that Morgan cares for make it back to the wild. You know, we want to save everything, but there are many instances where the animals are just too far gone by the time that we get them. And like I said earlier, like the treatment's quite nasty in itself and they don't always make it through treatment. So we do deal with a lot of loss, but it's part of, of what we do. And it just makes the, the releases that we do at the end of treatment and the ones that we can get back home, it makes it even more special for us as carers personally. I mean, the reason that all of us do this is fundamentally because we want to help these animals. And that must be quite heart-rendering when you have to euthanise one of them. But when you let one free, I mean, take it in some kind of container, presumably, and put it out, open it and let it run off, what, what does that feel like when you see it scramble up the nearest tree? It's, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to describe, like how you feel all the work that we do and all the losses that we go through sort of evaporate in that moment when you let one go and, and 
you know, you hope that it's going to go out and make more koalas. That's our goal. Everybody knows we're losing them, and it's our fault. You know, we know why we're losing them, which is the habitat destruction and the fragmenting of existing habitat, but nothing's really happening to turn that around. It's a bit like watching a car crash about to happen in slow motion. You can see exactly what's going to happen and you can see what needs to be done to avoid it, but not enough is being done. You know, we're not under any illusions here that we think that we can save the species, of course. I mean, we can't change the world, but we can try and, and change our little corner of the world and we try and do that, you know, one koala at a time. This episode of Think Sustainability was made possible because of the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. It was recorded in Sydney on Gadigal and Daragland. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. The executive producer is Lawrence Bull. I'm Wendy Frew. Thanks for listening. <laughs>